Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 55. Today we will be reading Book 13, chapters 8 through 14 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right. Well, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. We're carrying on through the creation account, through the seven days of creation with St. Augustine. And St. Augustine will continue, as, as he sort of left off yesterday, to consider the role of the Holy Spirit in creation and the gift of our creation. So we'll unpack that a little bit more. He also begins to talk about rest. Uh, it's the theme that was presented to us in the first lines of the Confessions way back in book one. I don't know if y'all remember that, but uh, we're going to return to it here and again in other parts of book 13, but we're going to pick it up here. So this idea of rest in God and being made for God. So Holy Spirit and rest, this is what we're going to be looking at today. All right, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 8. Angels fell away, man's soul fell away, and thus they bore witness to the abyss of the whole of spiritual creation, which would have fallen into the dark depths had you not said from the beginning, let there be light. And there was light, with every obedient intelligence of your heavenly city clinging to you and resting in your spirit, which moves about, without any change, over all changeable things. Otherwise, even the heaven of heavens would have been in itself a dark depth. But now it is light in the Lord. For even in that miserable restlessness of those spirits who fell away and revealed their own darkness when stripped of the garments of your light, you reveal well enough how noble you made all of rational creation, which will find no truly blessed rest in anything less than yourself, and thus not even in itself. For you, O our God, shall illumine our darkness. Our garment of light rises from you, and in its light our darkness shall be as the noonday sun. Give yourself to me, O my God. Restore yourself unto me. Behold, I love, and if my love is too little, then I desire to love more strongly. I cannot measure myself in order to know how much my love still falls short of what is needed for it to rush into your embrace and not turn away, until it be hidden in the hidden place of your presence. All that I know is that without you, all that is left is evil for me, not only outside myself, but within me as well. And all abundance that is not my God is but emptiness to me. Chapter 9 But did neither the Father nor the Son move about above the waters? If this were to mean in space like a body, then neither did the Holy Spirit. 
But if it means the unchangeable supereminence of the Godhead, which is above all changeable things, then the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all moved about above the waters. Why then is it said that only your spirit so moved? Why only him? Why is this said as though he had been in some place, he who is in no place, he who alone is said to be your gift? In your gift we rest, there we rejoice in you. Our rest is our place. Love lifts us up there, and your good spirit lifts up our lowliness from the gates of death. Our peace is found in a good will. By its own weight, the body strives to find its natural place. Weight does not solely draw it downward, but toward its own natural place. Fire tends upward and a stone downward. They are urged onward by their own particular weight. They seek their natural places. Oil poured below the surface of water rises to the surface above the water. Water poured upon oil sinks below the oil. They are urged onward by their own weight to seek their natural places. When out of their order, they are restless, and when they are restored to order, they are at rest. My weight is my love, and by it I am born wherever I am carried by its weight. By your gift we are set aflame and are born upwards. Inwardly we glow and mount higher. We ascend upon your paths within our heart and sing a psalm of ascent. With the flame of your fire, with your good fire, we glow inwardly and we mount upward. For we ascend to the peace of Jerusalem. For I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And there you in your good pleasure have placed us, that we might desire nothing other than to abide there forever. Chapter 10. O blessed creature, which could have been different from what it now is, but has in fact known no other condition than that as soon as it was created, it was, without any interval and by your gift, which moves about over all changeable things, born aloft by your call, as you said, let there be light, and there was light. But in us, this took place over a space of time, for we were darkness and have been made light. But about the blessed creature, we are only told what it would have been if it had not been enlightened. And this is said as though it had been unsettled and dark before, and that it might be clear what was the cause of its state, namely, that it became light by being turned to the unfailing light. Let him who can understand this. Let him ask it of you. Why should he trouble me about it, as though I could enlighten any man that comes into this world? Chapter 11. Which of us can understand the Almighty Trinity? And yet, who does not speak of it, if indeed he speaks about the Trinity? But rare is the soul who knows what he is speaking about when he speaks of the Trinity. And they contend and fight, and yet without peace no man sees that vision. I ask men to consider these three realities that can be found in us. These three are indeed very different from the Trinity. I will only tell where they may reflect upon themselves and there examine these things and see how distant they are. Now the three I spoke of are as follows. To be, to know, and to will. For I am, and I know, and I will. I am a knowing and willing being. I know that I have being and that I will, and I will that I be and that I know. Therefore, in these three things, let him who is able to discern how inseparable a life is found there, yes, one life, one mind, and one essence, and finally how inseparable a distinction is found there too, though yet there be a distinction indeed. Surely a man has this all available to his reflection. Let him look into himself, see what is there, and tell me what he finds. But when he discovers any of these realities and can say something about them, let him not therefore think that he has discovered that which is above these, itself immutable, yes, immutable in being, immutable in knowing, and immutable in willing. 
But who could readily conceive whether there is a Trinity in God because of these three, or whether all three of these are in each person in the Trinity, so that the three belong to each of them, or whether both are simultaneously the case, wondrously simple and yet multiple, infinitely its own end within itself and for itself, thereby being itself and knowing itself and sufficing for itself, unchangeably the self-same in the abundant greatness of its unity. Who could in any way express this? Who would dare rashly to declare something about it? Chapter 12. Proceed in your confession, O my faith, and say to the Lord your God, Holy, 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 O Lord my God. We have been baptized in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in your name do we baptize, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For among us as well, in his Christ, God has made heaven and earth, namely the spiritual and carnal people of his church. Indeed, your own earth, before it was informed by your doctrine, was invisible and formless, and we were covered by the darkness of ignorance. For you chastened men for his iniquity, and your judgments were for him like the great depths. However, because your spirit moved about above the waters, your mercy did not forsake our misery, and you said, Let there be light, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, let there be light. And because our soul was troubled within us, we remembered you, O Lord, from the land of Jordan, and we called that mountain, which is equal to you in grandeur, yet small for our sakes. And our darkness displeased us, so we turned to you, and there was light. And behold, we who once were darkness are now light in the Lord. Chapter 13. But as yet we walk by faith and not by sight. For in hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. And yet deep calls unto deep, though now in the voice of your roaring water. And yet he who says, I cannot address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, even he still does not think himself to have made this his own, but he forgets those things that lay behind him and strains forward towards those things that are before him. And groaning, he is burdened, with his soul thirsting for the living God as the deer longs for the streams of water. And he says, when shall I come there, desiring to be clothed with his dwelling place, which is in heaven? And calling upon these lower depths, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And also, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in thinking be mature. And, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But now he no longer speaks in his own voice, but rather in yours, you who sent your spirit from above through him who ascended on high and opened the floodgates of his gifts that his powerful streams might gladden the city of God. The friend of the bridegroom sighs after him, having now the first fruits of the spirit laid up with him, yet still groaning within himself and waiting for his adoption, that is the redemption of his body. For him he sighs, a member of the bride, and he is filled with ardent zeal on his behalf, for he is a friend of the bridegroom. His zeal is for this bridegroom, not for himself. For in the voice of your mighty waters, not in his own voice, he calls out to that other depth, for which he feels ardent zeal, feeling that just as the serpent deceived Eve through his cunning, so to their minds might be corrupted from the chaste purity that is to be found in your bridegroom, your only son. Oh, what will that beautiful light be like? when we see him as he is, when our eyes no longer will stream with those tears that night and day have been my bread, while they ask me every day, where is your God? Chapter 14. 
And I say, oh my God, where are you? Behold where you are. In you I breathe a little when I pour out my soul upon myself with a voice of joy and praise, the sound of him who partakes in a feast. And yet it sorrows because it falls back and becomes a depth, or rather perceives itself to be a depth. Unto it speaks my faith, which you have kindled to enlighten my feet in the night. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? His word is a lantern for your feet. Hope and endure until the night, the mother of the wicked, until the wrath of the Lord passes over. Once upon a time, we also were children of wrath, we who were once darkness, the relics of which we bear about us in our bodies, which are dead because of sin, until the dawn breaks and the shadows fly away. Hope in the Lord. In the morning I shall stand in your presence and contemplate you, and I shall forever confess unto you. In the morning I shall stand in your presence and shall see the health of my countenance, my God, who also shall raise our mortal bodies by the spirit that dwells within us. For he has mercifully hovered over the billowing waves of our inner dark depths. And from him we have received a pledge in the midst of our pilgrimage that we should be light, saved even now in hope, and are sons of light and of the day, not sons of night and of darkness, which we once, however, were. Here below, in the midst of the uncertainty of human knowledge, you alone distinguish between them and us, you who prove our hearts and call the light day and the darkness night. For who discerns our true state of soul except you? And what do we have that we have not received from you? Out of the same lump of clay, some vessels are made for honorable use, whereas others are made to be roughly treated. All right, so I mentioned this theme of rest, this notion of rest, um, and St. Augustine returns to it. That's why I mentioned it, obviously. Um, and here in these chapters, St. Augustine makes clear, he's pretty direct, in that the only place a rational creature, that's us, uh, the only place a rational creature will find rest is in God. That's it. There's no other solution. There's no other answer. There's no other place. And remember writing this at sort of midpoint in his life, we've walked through many a book and chapters on the wanderings and the restlessness and the sort of what searching of St. Augustine that he went through in his life. It's not a big conclusion, I would say at this point, because it's not as if he just came upon this realization, but it is a pretty radical thing, I would say, to recognize um, in his life that this is true and to confess that um, given, I don't know, his history, his past, his own wandering. So Father Gregory, thoughts on rest, thoughts on fulfillment, thoughts on St. Augustine with these sort of things. Yeah. What's churning in your mind? Yeah. I think um, in this particular passage, St. Augustine is describing how the Lord or God in his creation uh, makes first there to be a kind of intelligibility. So light, you know, it's a classical or kind of ancient medieval notion, usually associated with the understandability of reality. And reality is understandable, not because we make it so, because it is understandable, because that's part of what it means to be, or the part of what it means to live, or part of what it means to know, depending on how high of a creation we're talking about, or how sublime an expression of, of God's creative power we uh, are, you know, have under consideration. So there's a kind of sense in which God makes us within a creation, which creation bespeaks him, which creation kind of bears the light of its creator or, you know, refracts the light of its creator. So then in coming to contemplate that light or profit from that light, be illumined by that light, we come to the God who stands at the head of all creation while himself transcending it uh, utmostly. And so I think that there's this really beautiful kind of coming to fruition of the 
Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy in which he was steeped, and then his Christian understanding, which helps him to appreciate how we, by intellectual inquiry as rational creatures, are ultimately you know, directed to a certain rest in the knowledge and love of God, because that's the highest expression. He's going to talk about how we're made to the image of the Trinity, even, by this kind of capacity, as it were, not only to be, but to know and to love. So it's a cool way to set it up. Yeah, and it's we're kind of flowing here with these ideas that lead one to another. So you know, rest in God. He talks again about the gratuity of creation, and then he talks about the image of God, the imago Dei, in which we're created, and, and the sort of Trinitarian symbols in us. So we've talked about the gift, the gratuity of creation in yesterday's episode and previous episodes. It's not something new for us. So unless, Father Gregory, you have any sort of burning new epiphanies on on the gratuity of creation, I think I think we've set that pretty well with St. Augustine. I don't know. I have epiphanies, but they are neither burning nor new. So as they fail to correspond to the stated requirements, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep them to myself. Okay. Well, if you have any burning or new epiphanies, you you let us know. Uh, let's talk about the Imago Day, the Trinitarian symbols that he talks about that he sees in in us. Um, Imago Day, the image of God. You know, we're made in the image or unto the image and likeness of God. I think that's something that you, Father Gregory, like to point out that we're made to the image and likeness of God rather than in the image. Maybe you can explain that. Um, but also these symbols, these Trinitarian symbols in us um, reflecting that, reflecting God's handiwork, I guess it could be said in us. So, you know, so St. Augustine points out these three, to be, to have existence, to know, we've talked about a lot about knowing, and to love or to will. St. Augustine admits that these aren't thoroughly explained in the scriptures, so he comments a bit on them. Obviously, our tradition comments on them, but we're also going to comment on them. So, Imago Dei, Trinitarian symbols in us say more. Yeah. So, St. Augustine returns to this theme again in his writings, the most famous account of which is in the De Trinitate, which he wrote after the Confessions, so it would be a more mature work. And he's going to say something slightly different in the De Trinitate, not because what he has to say here is wrong, but because what he has to say here is a kind of groundwork upon which he builds in subsequent treatises. But he's always on the lookout for these different uh, kind of indications of the Trinitarian God who is at work in his creation. And St. Augustine, it kind of in concert with the majority of the Christian tradition, will say, okay, so when God acts in his creation, he does so as God, right? So it's not like like the Father creates and, and then the Son, he sanctifies, and then the Holy Spirit, he deify or whatever else. I don't remember exactly how the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, that's how people usually do their little summation. But he says, no, God acts in creation. But you can always pick up little vestiges of the Trinity insofar as whenever God acts in creation, he leaves little hallmarks of his Trinitarian interpersonality. And so we can contemplate those. And it doesn't mean like, oh, look, that flower has three petals. That must mean, okay, that might mean. Uh, but you can see it in even more theologically rich or in a more kind of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Salvifically like noteworthy way. And, and he sees that in us. He sees that at work in our human nature. So this one that he lists here is, you know, to be, to know, and to will. And he'll list later the, the kind of acts, as it were, of, of knowing and loving and of remembering specifically. So we've seen the significance of memory in this work, and it's going to come back in a big way. Um, but that's just one of many images or one of many analogies that he uses to describe how our interior life corresponds to the interior life of the Most High God. But the basic idea here is that we're thrown open to the Most High God because we're made on the pattern or template of God, and that 
were made on the pattern or template of God, specifically with an eye to being assimilated or conformed to God, not because God is a kind of creepy Borg who wants to have outstations in his science fictional strange galaxy, uh, but in that that is or that represents our flourishing, our happiness, our salvation in this post-fall world. So pretty cool, pretty sweet. Yeah. There are two things here at the end of, or the, you know, these last chapters that we're looking at today that we're going to cover. And um, again, makes sense. They're all linked together and they've kind of flow together though. He's kind of bopping around a bit. I don't know. If, I kind of got a sense of that when I was re rereading again, you know, he's talking about creation. He's talking about the, the verses of creation. Then he's talking about the goodness of creation. So it's all about the same, but it's not, as we said at the outset, when he was looking at Genesis, it's, it's not a strict exegesis or explanation verse by verse, but more meditations in a larger way. And, and something that he meditates upon here is, is the sort of presence, we could say, allegorically of the church in, in the first chapter of Genesis. Um, he'll talk more about it as we go through, but at least he sees um, in the creation of the world of of the created world he sees a sort of what allegory um of the church uh a presence of the church also we made i guess made mention of this in the introduction and in uh, at least i'll say this that saint augustine sees a sort of wholeness in creation that all of creation is made from God's goodness, but also made to glorify God and then also to be led back to God in its proper ways depending on the created thing. And in seeing the church's role in sanctifying and redeeming and leading others to God, he he sort of sees this parallel reality between creation and the existence of the church. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I do you Father Greg, do you think this is kind of a stretch? Is it kind of a reading in? What do you are you comfortable with with this sort of approach? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's a it's a kind of enlightenment notion, like a 17th, 18th century notion to say that you have to approach a text without any presuppositions or without any commitments in order to do it in virginal and honest fashion. It's just not true. Uh, there's no view from nowhere. There's no wholly impartial stance. And even if there were, it just wouldn't be fruitful because we as human beings are always situated. And so St. Augustine is reading the sacred scriptures as situated within the life of the church because he's a pastor of the church, because he's responsible for the salvation of those entrusted to his care, and because the scripture is a monument of the church's tradition, and we're meant to read the sacred scriptures in keeping with tradition, in keeping with the doctrines of the faith as they have been enunciated throughout the ages and clarified by subsequent magisterial teachings. And so he knows that the purpose of creation is the church, and so he's going to be able to find it in Genesis because he knows that the God, who is at work in creation, is at work in the scriptures as a kind of cipher for the meaning of our whole life. And yeah, I find it beautiful, like heavens and earth corresponding to the spiritual and kind of um, institutional elements, as it were, of the church. And I think that's not a way in which we ordinarily think. It's a it's a way that's kind of proper to St. Augustine's setting, but ought ultimately to have application in our own. Uh, because St. Augustine thinks in more communitarian or more ecclesial terms than we do. Oftentimes we envision our Christian lives as just a matter of we're like storing up the grace points and we're trying to get ourselves saved here. And if you know, other people get saved also, that's cool, especially if they're members of our family. I'm kind of responsible for them, but I mean, I'm just kind of basically responsible for myself. Whereas for St. Augustine, it's like, no, we go to God together, for sure, for sure. Uh, even in the liturgy that St. Augustine celebrated in Northern Africa, when you say, lift up your hearts, you don't say hearts, you say heart, because the church has one heart, because it constitutes one body, the body of Christ, who worships the Most High God, head and members. And so I think that's a, yeah, it's a good thing for us to have in the back of our minds and to kind of recover some of that in our own worship and evangelization. 
And by way of sort of finishing for today, St. Augustine, at the end of these chapters, makes mention of, of I guess it's within the, the same sort of theme of, of rest in God, uh, but ultimately that this rest, this redemption, renewal, perfection is not something arrived at in this life. That's not a that's not a sort of what pessimistic reality. It's just reality, and what that says is that you know we're not made for here. Uh, we exist here, but ultimately we're we're made for heaven. We're made to share in the life of the Trinity. And I don't know. I find it kind of interesting that he makes mention of this here at this point. But it, it also makes sense as he's talking about the church, as he's talking about the Imago Dei and the Trinity, sort of symbols and vestiges in us that point to the fact that we're created by and created for God. As he's talking about the gratuity of creation, as he's talking about um, rest in God, I find it to be an uh, what a, a good reminder and encouraging thing to remember that we're going to have to bear our crosses here and we're going to have to fight temptations here. St. Augustine has made abundantly clear, but ultimately we're made for li- the life to come. We're made for heaven. We're, we're also made to be perfected, not to perfect ourselves, but be for- perfected by his grace, by God's grace and conform to him. So sometimes, you know, if we, if we pass over that too quickly, we might be tempted to think of the, of that reality in terms of like, just kind of like sad, like, ah, it, it's never going to be achieved, but no, you know, God promises that it will be achieved. It's just, where and when? Well, in the life to come. When? I don't know. I don't know when it'll be for me. I don't know when it'll be for you, Father Gregory, but I'm pretty sure something will come. So there it is. Any final last minute thought or word on on this section of book 13 before we sign off for the day? Yeah, I think um, I've just been thinking a lot about this theme of light because I've been preparing a course at the time of recording on the theological virtues uh, to teach at the Dominican House of Studies. And when we talk about the light of faith, we use this image of light. And we think about it as a kind of, I don't know, cute image or cute metaphor. But truth be told, it's got real purchase on our human experience because there are aspects of our existence which lie in the shadows until such time as faith illumines them. And in illumining them and bringing them before our gaze and bringing them to our attention, it helps us to live in you know the here and now with a deeper or a kind of more, I don't know, excellent engagement with things invisible and visible, ultimately ordered in God and unto the glory of God. And um, yeah, just this this image of light, I found it to be very consoling because while we feel ourselves to be compassed about by darkness in many ways, yet there is a kind of, um, yeah, like radius or there is a kind of circumference within which the light shines and that is the church. And that can, you know, it doesn't always feel like that, phenomenologically or existentially, but still it remains true that we are called to abide in the light in the context of the church and that within those bounds, the Lord will provide for us. There you have it. All right, we're going to leave you with that for today. We'll pick up, of course, tomorrow. No of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Mm-hmm.